Welcome to the Naked Ambition podcast, where we speak with the people who are making an impact in tech, innovation, and design all over the world. This show is brought to you by the team at Naked Ambition. We are a design-led innovation company, partnering with some of the world's smartest companies to help them solve complex challenges and design new futures. I'm your host, Fiona Triarca. So welcome everyone that is joining us today for the Naked Ambition podcast, where we speak with the people who are making an impact in tech innovation and leadership all over the world. So today on the show, I have Conrad Tracy, who is the CEO of Addiction Coaching Australia. Welcome, Conrad. Hi, Fiona. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very so, excited. <laughs> welcome. We're so excited that you're able to join us today. Conrad, we know each other on a personal level. We used to work together in the hub and you have just struck out with a really important and incredible company in Addiction Coaching Australia. If you will give me a moment, I might just read out your bio for everyone so they can understand a little bit about how you got here. And then I'm really excited to dive into your story in more depth and hear about the important work that you're doing as well. So for everyone out there, Conrad Tracy has founded three companies. One of those includes the super cool co-working space, Revolver Creative, which some of you Melburnians may have had some experience with back in the day. It was one of the absolute originals um, when co-working just sprung up. He's also worked in senior management for some of Australia's most innovative and also culturally conscious organisations. One of those includes Hub Australia, uh, where we also met. His most recent company, Addiction Coaching Australia, which we're here to talk about today, was inspired by Conrad's personal journey with addiction and some of his experiences in Melbourne's addiction recovery community including, more recently, coaching high-performance individuals and teams in this specific area, which is all backed up by his qualifications in psychology. So interestingly, Addiction Coaching Australia have also created what is known as the Delta Path Method, which is a modern alternative to substance misuse and other addiction therapies. Super important work, Conrad, which is why we're so excited that you are on the show today. And this is a big, brave move launching this business and such a, a critical area, probably more now than ever, which I'm sure you're going to tell us a bit about. Can you kick off by telling us what was the catalyst to launch Addiction Coaching Australia? Sure. Like, I think the major thing for me is that I felt like it was really needed, you know, and I, I found myself in, in a point in my career where I had done so many interesting things. I'd worked with so many dynamic people. And the thing that really struck a chord with me throughout all of the experiences, whether that be, you know, operations, business development, startup, whatever it was, the aspect of the work that I loved the most was connecting with them and helping others, right? So whenever I was in a company and I got the opportunity to cultivate a person, right, or help someone achieve their goals or get to a point where, you know, they, they kind of felt like they were hitting their stride, I, I found great happiness and purpose in that. And, you know, I was on that journey myself. I was doing high-performance coaching with a, with a leadership coach when I was working at, at Hub Australia, 
And I was so grateful for that opportunity. And I kind of got to this juncture where I'm like, well, I've had this life-changing experience. I've been through something that not many people have been through. Um, I've navigated it really successfully with the help of, you know, my family and, and all of the people around me that supported me. I've come out the other end and my life is like a thousand times better, right? So I'm like, how do I take that experience, share it with others so they don't have to go through the same turmoil that I did and help people to create meaningful change, right? So to be honest with you, I came up with it with my coach. And I'm like, this is my purpose. I love helping people. Let's combine them. And then, you know, looking out into the, I won't say marketplace, but looking out into the world at the moment, it is so prevalent. I saw it in the, the recovery community around me. I saw it in friends and, and family and work colleagues. There was just so many people kind of wanting help with this. So, yeah, it really it felt like a, the perfect combination of my purpose, a great need, and my, you know, helping others through sharing my personal journey. Yeah. Yeah, so, so exciting. Tell us a little bit about that personal journey. So why is this so personal to you? How did it come about? What have you been through? Oh, look, to me, I'll be quite open and honest with you. You know, yeah. I, I hope that this doesn't shock anybody. I'm not here to do that. I'm just here to share my story um, with great honesty, right? Because I feel like it encourages people to share theirs and, and be more open. Um, I, you know, I had a pretty happy childhood. Um uh, I have, you know, I came from a, a loving family and my parents were very successful. We migrated from Hong Kong when I was about five years old. So, you know, we had a, a beautiful life over there. And look, we came over to Australia and I don't think we were prepared for the cultural shift, right? So we came from, you know, kind of a like a high-flying, you know, Hong Kong lifestyle. And we ended up in uh, in the eastern suburbs of of Melbourne in Bayswater right, in about 1987. So it was a little bit rough around the edges, right, but, it's, you know, it's cool. And, look, unfortunately for me, and this is where it kind of started for me, I was the, you know, I was the victim of really, really severe childhood sexual trauma, mm. right, um, which is still hard for me to talk and speak to, you know. It's something that I'm, I'm working through um, as we speak, and I'll continue to do that for a long time. But that kind of, that occurred there, right? And the thing that changed for me is I went from this, like, vivacious, happy, engaged and connected young boy to a closed-off, frightened, fragile, petrified, you know, kind of shell of a person. Like you can see photos of me when I was like five or six and I was like, yeah. And then you see photos of me when I was like six or seven and it's a very different story, right? So I think that coupled with the cultural shift that I, I faced in, you know, coming to a new country, um, I had this horrendous experience and I had to then navigate primary school and high school and all of this stuff. And it was really, really hard for me because, unfortunately, I was incapable of, of trust. Mm. Right? Yeah. I was so scared of men. I was so scared of, you know, groups of people. I had aversions to everything. I couldn't let anybody in. I was completely closed off. And I was really 
scared and fragile. And I think what I latched onto as a as a person to be able to navigate all of that in Australia um, was anger. Mm. Right? So I'm like, if I put up a front and, you know, I just kind of act tough and act hard and act like, you know, nothing phases me and put on the ego and put on the anger and the fear, I'll be able to navigate this, right? It's the only way I'm going to get through it. So that's what I did. And, you know, I kind of, you know, like I won't go into the whole thing, but I ended up, you know, going through primary school, going through high school. I was quite well-liked, right? But I don't know if it was like well-liked out of respect or well-liked out of fear, yeah? Mm. Um, And that's a really hard thing, I think, for me to say, you know, because I don't sit in that space anymore. But, you know, one thing that I found that allowed me to connect with my emotions and to connect with others, right, which was the big thing, right, to let people in, to let them see me and to let me be my true self, unfortunately, was drugs, Mm. right? So, like, I remember really, really vividly being, you know, about 12 or 13 and, you know, having my first joint And look, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Where I grew up, there was a lot of stuff going on. You know, I I was really privy and saw so many things that were not, you know, part of the narrative that you would have wanted for a a child my age, right? And that's nobody's fault, right? It was just the way it kind of the cookie crumbled. But I graduated pretty quickly, right? (laughs) So like by 14 or 15, I was taking ecstasy. And by 15 or 16, I was, that had kind of, gotten into speed, right? And then, you know, I did that for years and years and years. And, you know, I've always been very, very intelligent. So I managed to do well at high school. You know, I got a a music scholarship. I attended the Victorian College of the Arts. I studied psychology at the University of Melbourne. You know, like I really was leading this Jekyll and Hyde double life, right? So, I use drugs as a way to connect with others. I use drugs as a way to keep myself going, right, because I've always been very driven to achieve things and to get things done and to tick things off. And, you know, that kind of, it just escalated and escalated and escalated. The really challenging stage in my life was when I was juggling two companies, right? I really bit off more than I could chew, right? I was hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. I was working like, you know, I was getting up at kind of, you know, five, working through a whole day, going home, working again, like doing everything, you know, doing all the books and like just the one man show, but trying to do it across two scaling companies. Mm. Um, And look, it's a bit shocking, but I kind of, I graduated into methamphetamines, right? And that for me was a very, very natural progression because it allowed me to get what I needed to get done, right, and do it quite effectively, right, for a a while. <laughs> and then, you know, the wheels really, really started to fall off. Um, for me, I went from, you know, somebody who was, managing all of this stuff and, you know, on the exterior, you know, I was in like top 10 startups on Business Insider and getting all of these articles and everyone was looking at me going, mate, you're killing it. And I'm like, I am so, I'm in so much trouble. 
<laughs> you know, like I need help, right? And, you know, I just kept on going until the point where it really started to affect my mental health, right? So I suffered pretty like a full-blown psychosis, right, from the, the use of cocaine and methamphetamines in tandem. And look, it took me a number of years to get clean. I won't go through the entire process, but what I will say is that I went to rehab, right? And, you know, I have a very, very forward-thinking and gracious boss to thank for that, right? So I'm not going to go into the specifics of where I was at this point, but I, I made a, you know, I really threw a grenade under my career. Um, and this was, you know, a number of years ago. And I was very lucky in that the, the person that was, you know, I was working for saw that, you know, I was a good person. I had a good heart and I wanted the best for everyone, but I was really not coping in my personal life, right? So he kind of said to me, look, you can't really work here anymore, <laughs> but I want to help you to get the help you need, Right. And he did. And I went off and I spent 30 days in a, in a residential rehab. And that changed my life, right? And it didn't change my life because I got clean. It changed my life because I identified my trauma, right? So, again, I was still pretty angro. angro that's angry and aggro. <laughs> I got into a confrontation in rehab. I, I took something, you know, I'll, somebody was being anti-Semitic in the rehab, right? And I, I grew up in an area and, you know, I have lots of friends in that, you know, are part of that culture. And I took a front to that and I got very, very angry. And this, this altercation almost ended in a, in a physical altercation. And I got separated from that person and I went into a, another room with an amazing counsellor, hypnotherapist as well. And, you know, she saw this anger in me. She saw this fear and this rage. And she's like, this is bigger than some guy mouthing off, mm. right? So she kind of sat me down. She put me under and, you know, we went down the rabbit hole. And I was 36 at this point. So at 36, after a lifetime, like 30 one year, 30 years yeah. of not knowing why I was angry, why I was closed off, why I was shut down, why I hated, you know, all of these things. I came to the realisation through this hypnotherapy that I had been assaulted, right? And I had completely um, shut that off. I, I put a, you know, deep section of my memory and it came to light that day, Right. And I just remember feeling the most amazing sense of relief, right? Now, this is not an excuse for the way I behaved, right? It's not an excuse for me taking drugs. It's not an excuse for all of the behaviour that kind of was connected to that, right? But it gave me an insight into why I was feeling the way I had been feeling, right? And as soon as I knew, it was like the greatest weight had been lifted off me, right? I felt like I was walking around with a, a Santa sack of boulders my entire life. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So I was really able to kind of drop the rock that day. And then I went into my room and I, I cried, you know, and I cried and I cried and I cried. And it took me about three days to come out of there and go, okay, uh, like that just happened and I'm reconciling it and, I'm, you know, I'm here to do the program. So that was the revelation. And then 
you know, at that point, my family had had enough. Uh, I destroyed so many relationships, two businesses teetering on kind of, you know, bankruptcy. I didn't have any choice but to do what I was told, right? So I left rehab. I went and did uh, Narcotics Anonymous, right? So, you know, in the movies where they all sit in the (laughs) room and go, hey, I'm I'm an addict, you know, I'm clean today. I did that consistently, right, for three years, right? So I went nearly every day. I had service positions at the meetings, which means that I used to go and, you know, meet, greet people and take the chocolate and do the tea. And I really immersed myself in that community and coupled with hypnotherapy, better nutrition, physical training. And then, you know, obviously, like not obviously, but I really went down the rabbit hole of holistic self-care. Mm. Right. So I went to body work stuff. I did um, men's groups. I did intimacy workshops. I've tried every single form of meditation. You know, I went on retreats. I just did everything. I'm like, I kind of got a bit obsessed with it. Right. Because I'm like, it's working. I feel great. I'm, I'm a human being again. Right. And, you know, like I sit here today, I'm almost four years clean. So I haven't had a, a drug or a drink or like even really a, a painkiller in in four years. And Congratulations. My, I mean, that's, oh, that's just absolutely amazing. I want to get into this, that recovery and coming out and the holistic yeah. approach because that's an absolute linchpin for what you're doing now. Yeah. Take us back to, you know, that time at its peak though because this is probably not an unfamiliar story for some people that actually may be going through something similar, you know, type A personality, you know, overperform, you know, outperforming probably a lot of your peers, but underneath it all, this thing bubbling to the surface and this this secret, I guess, that you're keeping from probably family, friends and everybody else, or you think you are, you know, talk to us about how do you pull that off day to day? What are you actually going through to live like that? A lot of pain. Yeah a lot of lying and a lot of storytelling, right? So, you know, you start to spin and you spin and you spin and like you, I mean, when I say spin, I mean you spin things, right? You spin stories and you start to believe it. Like I'll give you a a day, like a typical day for me is that like I would get up and, you know, I find this hard to, to say, right? But, you know, like unfortunately I would wake up and the first thing I would do was use drugs, right? whether that be cocaine or methamphetamines, right? And if I didn't have them, what would happen straight away is that I would have a chronic fit of anxiety. So I would be sitting in the shower, I'd be crouched down in the corner, crying, shaking, like, you know, and it would take me 45 minutes to get myself together, right? So I could get out the door, put on a brave face and and hit the ground running, you know? So... And that becomes really hard to hide, right? When you're at that point and you're living at, you know, with a partner or you might be living at home, like everyone sees it, everyone hears it. So, yeah, I really, really came unstuck. And, you know, people start to notice also, like, you just don't show up for things. Yeah. Right? I was late and I used to blame it on, oh, it's like that entrepreneurial thing where you're just like flying around and, you know, there's a thousand things on, but I was just completely disorganised, right? And it kind of worked for a while and then it really didn't. So, look, I was lucky enough to have friends and family around me who kind of saw it and said, look, it's time for a change. Yeah. Yeah. And were there places that you were looking for that help before 
people outside sort of said to you, this is what you've got to do? Oh, look, I remember kind of Googling it, right? I think that was the first thing I ever did. I was like, I've got a drug addiction. Like, what do I do? (laughs) Right? And, you know, the rehabs came up and the 12-step stuff came up. And at that point, my ego was too big. I was like, there is no way I'm going to 12-step. You think I'm going to go and sit in in one of those rooms and hang out with those people and share? No way, right? And the rehab thing was really not going to work for me either because I had too much on, right? I was like, how am I going to go to rehab? I've got two businesses. I've got a girlfriend. I've got the banks. I've got, you know, customers. Like, it's all, how's it going to work, right? So I just, I looked at those two alternatives and I was like, no, I'll just keep on going, right? I wish that I had got on the internet and found what we do now. Yeah. I would have gone, that's something that I can do, right? I can turn my work down a little bit, right? I can create some space. I can work with a coach, right? We can do a bespoke program. I don't have to go to rehab, don't have to go to heaps of meetings, you know? So, you know, I really created what I'm doing now from a need that I had, you know, when I was really, really sick and I couldn't find. It was like, go to NA, go to rehab. And those two choices weren't going to work for me at that time. Tell us what's flawed about that model. Cause I think you've just touched on something so interesting there, which is that, you know, they are not like me feeling, you know, people that are getting help and are going to those things. That's not where I'm at. I can't see myself and identify myself that part of it. And even more so, you know, what do you think is fundamentally broken with the way that it's being approached specifically for people, you know, like you in your sort of scenario where you were back then that except for what you guys are doing is not being served. So for me, like I'll I'll preface this by saying that, you know, the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous are responsible for a a great part of my recovery, right? I cherish my time there. I cherish the people. I'm not as connected with that program as I used to be. But if someone from there rang me and said, I need your help, I'd be there in a flash, right? The problem with it is, is that there is too many barriers to entry. And the first thing is God. So if you go into a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, the first thing that you're going to see up on the wall there is God. Right. And, you know, in 2021, in, in a society where we, you know, we come from different experiences and different cultural backgrounds and different beliefs, like that's the first barrier, right? The second one for me is that it's not inclusive enough, right? Look, I don't want to kind of can it, but some of the language that's used, some of the literature, like it was written in the 50s, you know, it's not for all people. It's for white men, right? That's who it was written for, written by, you know, and that didn't resonate with me, right? And it still doesn't resonate with me. I sit in there sometimes, I'm like, oh, you know, like I wish I could rewrite it or or amend it for a more modern time, right? The other problem that I find with it is that it's a big melting pot, right? You know, and so if you come from an environment like me, I'm the first one to put my hand up, right? I've said this already, my ego was too big to allow me to go to a place like that. I couldn't sit in a room full of people from jail and full of people from here and full of people from there. Like I just, I couldn't do it. Now I can do it because I've surrendered and I'm like, well, we're all addicts. So, but like then, so imagine you're going in, you see God, the language is not inclusive. It's not modern. It's really old school. And you walk in there and you're just like, who are all these people? And what has it got to do with me? Mm. You know, It takes a lot of time to 
put all of those things aside and realize at the core of it it's a brilliant program with brilliant people right but if you hit three barriers it's an i've seen so many people walk in there walk out yeah straight out like they'll yeah. do half a meeting right i remember this one time so specifically in in south melbourne you know this lady came in and she was beautifully dressed, like probably came down from Spencer Street on her lunch break, right? And she walked into this meeting and she lasted 15 minutes, right? But she was so desperate. She was bawling. Like she obviously had a really serious problem that had affected her life, but that environment, she just couldn't deal with it. And maybe, you know, like she ended up back there, but that's a major, major barrier, right? And it's the same kind of thing in the rehabs, you know. The, the major thing that I have there is that you can't control the cohort, right? So what if I'm desperate to get well and the guy next to me or the person next to me is desperate to get well and the other person next to me is desperate to get well and there's three of us, but we're in a cohort of 15 people or eight people, Right. And three of them are there because the courts ordered them there and the other three are there because, you know, if they don't go there, their parents are going to, you know, eject them from the household and, and the other person's there just for, for whatever reason, right? You have to spend your entire time there. And remembering you're spending like, this can be like $30,000 a month to go to one of these places, right? Mm. And then you have to deal with that internal dynamic of 10 or 12 of the people there not wanting to be there, not wanting to get well, not wanting to do the work, wanting to turn it into, you know, Melrose Place, big drama. Right? <laughs> it's just like, it's too much. Okay, so you've got the melting pot, which can be a bit of a, a repellent. So you're sort of saying all these barriers, blockers, we may actually be repelling people when if you just improve that overall, maybe early part of the experience, there might be opportunities to keep more people in can you tell yeah. me how do you answer that in what you're doing now so who is addiction coaching specifically for and who does it help that maybe aren't being helped by these other channels so look one of the most important thing that i didn't mention right and i, I kind of left it for for now is is privacy yeah. right i know it's 2021 but i sit here right after all of this and i still feel uncomfortable saying i have a problem with with drugs I'm a drug addict, right? So for people to come to terms with that and actually admit it and ask for help is the hardest thing. That's the first step, right? Putting your hand up and saying, I need help. People are willing to do that, but they're not willing to do it in front of everyone, right? So one of the, the key parts of my program, and I've seen it and I've seen it work really, really successfully, is that people can call us, right? and they work with me or they work with one of the other two coaches, right? We do it in complete privacy. We are modern. We're inclusive, right? We do everything uh, either online or in person. So it feels like a modern experience that you would, you know, you would have with a technology company or with a service, and you don't have to air your business in front of everyone, right? A lot of the people that we're working with uh, come from corporate backgrounds, and, you know, obviously I'm not going to sit here and, and tell you where they work, but they're big companies and people in big roles and they've got big problems, right? So our service allows you to get private, bespoke care to help you create meaningful change and stay close to your family, stay close to work and stay and actually develop real-world skills, right? Because when you go to rehab, 
You go there for 30, 60, 90 days, and then you walk out. They give you a certificate, and they're like, off you go, yeah, right? Yeah. You can do aftercare. People don't engage with it as much as they should, and then they walk out back into the real world, and they're like, they've got no skills for dealing with that. So when you're doing your program in the real world, you're actually coping day to day. You're understanding that you shouldn't go to that place. You shouldn't go to that party. You shouldn't interact with that person. You need to build a time frame if you're going to go around, go to that place and do that thing, right? So we're teaching people every single day how to get better at avoiding hiccups, right? Avoiding people, places and things that are detrimental to their health and their happiness. It feels like that sort of solution can catch a lot of people before it gets to a level of seriousness that maybe you're starting to see people because it's that and, you know, from a personal perspective, my brother had battled with serious heroin addiction and methamphetamines and things for his whole life. He's passed away now. There's a lot of mental health issues that were behind that. But it's something that it, it almost, the system, it has to be so serious in most cases for you then to be able to go and get help. And I know that there's, you know, this is obviously getting into a really murky area because there's a whole lot of challenges around this for funding and and being able to, for people to be able to find that right place. But it seems that there is this enormous gap of almost a personalised approach, an approach that, you know, because in his case, there's a lot of places he couldn't go because of the problems that he, schizophrenia, so he wasn't allowed, you know, a lot of the rehab clinics because of that seriousness of his mental health but then on the other hand he wasn't allowed to get help for that because of the seriousness of his addiction so you end up in this kind of no man's land and it may not be necessarily the segment that you're talking to or the people that you're trying to help but I think you know wheeling back from that there's got to be a big group of people who need help before it gets to that level of magnitude that you know, you have to spend six months in rehab or months, you know, as you said, and then everything else falls apart. So then you walk away from, you know, the rehab and you're clean, but you don't have a house, a job, maybe a partner, (laughs) you know, because, yeah, exactly, or the the things to prepare. One of the things that's really, really important, and I I say this and I I mean it, is that we meet people where they are, Mm. right? And what I mean by that is that if you go to NA, right, or you go to AA or GA or you go to rehab, it is a 100% abstinence approach, right? They're like, never take a drink again, never take a drug again, mm-hmm. never play a pokey again, right? And for me, I've had great success with people who have come to me and said, I'm drinking this much. This is too much and it's affecting my life, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and my kids are angry and my wife's angry and it's really, it's getting out of hand. So how do I get it to the point where I can go out, I can still be sociable, I can drink responsibly, right? And for me, I like that, right? All I want to help people is to create the change that they want to see in their lives. I'm never going to say to someone, you must do this, you must do that. I can make recommendations, you know, I don't think people should take drugs. But, you know, like we really try and capture the person where they are see where they want to be and help them to get there, you know. And, you know, thank you so much for sharing the story of your brother. That's really powerful. And what I'm also happy to share with you is that there's been great work, you know, by people like Turning Point to work with people with coexisting, right, mental health and uh, and 
drug problems. And you're right, it's probably not the field that we are working in, but it is improving, which is a great news. Mm. But for us, it's, yeah, it's really about meeting the person where they are and helping them to create meaningful change. Talk to us a little bit about the habits that are created as part of our workplaces and culture and the things that we do, because this is all really linked, you know, this is your helping... I'm taking a leap here, but it's presuming, you know, like is it's the people who are in a lot of cases are probably some of those high performers that are dealing with this, whether, you know, it's known or it's most likely unknown. So what are sort of some of the things that you see in workplaces that maybe are driving some of these or enabling some of these problems in individuals? What are sort of some of the stats around it? And what do you also think at a systemic level? It's more of the question really we need to challenge and we need to improve. Yeah, we need to challenge that work hard, play hard thing, you know. That really is not a vibe, I don't think, in in 2021, you know. Particularly with the younger demographic, like it's been statistically proven that people in their 20s and and mid-20s are drinking less, right? And they're not taking drugs. So when they come up through their their graduate positions and come through companies, they're not really going to be interested in in doing any of that stuff, right? And what I'm seeing from the work I do is that people who are in their late 40s, 50s, early to, yeah, kind of 60 to 65, they're, they're perpetuating that, right? And they're creating a culture where they can't do business without drinking or they can't do business without drugs, right? It's like... They do all of their their deals in bars. They do all of their deals, you know, on junkets. It's like they're not able to create space, right, between business and and pleasure, right? And I I really, really feel like that's something that we need to work on. And I think that people in senior leadership need to be really mindful of the change that's happening below them, right, and start creating environments where they're not kind of perpetuating that culture. Companies like, you know, Hub were great at doing that, right? So they they would have events and there would never be an open bar, right? Mm. Just it never happened. They would would have like, they would put on drinks for a certain period to a certain time and then they would encourage everybody to go home by a certain hour. And then what they would do, which was really, really smart, is the next day at 7.30 in the morning, they would have an event. (laughs) right which is what i try and do with my clients it's like if you've got to go to something on a friday you need to make sure on saturday morning you're super accountable right? oh, parenthood <laughs> exactly exactly you got to take the kids to footy that helps but like to give you i mean statistically right and i, I did prepare some stats for you because it's important right so it affects one in five australians mm. right and $600 million a year in terms of loss of product productivity in Australian workforce. Wow. Yeah. 11.5 million sick days in Australia in a two-and-a-half-year period. And one in 10 workers have come out and said that somebody else's alcohol use is affecting their work. Mm. Right. So they've either had to stay back late to cover for this person, they've had to lie for this person, or there's been a workplace accident or near miss because of the alcohol and drug use of a co-worker. Mm. Right. So $600 million a year lost in productivity to drugs and alcohol, right, and 11.5 million sick days. 
Which is what makes it so interesting as well because we've just talked, you know, in this whole conversation about the personal level, the personal accountability, you know, the individual questioning how this is impacting their lives and their families. But this is this is a business problem. Yeah, it's what you're talking about there, you know, <laughs> especially after last year because so many conversations of sort of other groups that I participate in that are around, you know, other business owners doing sort of similar work in digital design and these sorts of things so many conversations about people saying that it's become so obvious how severe these problems are with some of their and to the point with you know with some of their team members ending up in actual rehab situations or needing to take time out or these sorts of things because of years like last year you know where now our our accountability from you know that employee employer relationship now extends to the home so, so it's, it's really important now to be aware of I imagine I mean this must be some of the stuff that you're thinking about as well is this is this where you guys are going absolutely so low accountability high boredom high stress are the three most you know that is a recipe for disaster mm. and look you've heard it I'm seeing it yeah. right so not only do I work as a coach but I work as a facilitator in one of Melbourne's best rehabs right? And there's just, when I say inundated, that wouldn't be a strong enough word, right? And what is happening is that people who were having, you know, a light drink, their drinking has increased. People that were having a punt, right? They're having more Mm. of a punt. People that were, you know, maybe going out and and doing a bit of cocaine or a bit of ecstasy on the weekend, now they're doing it midweek, right? And they have zero accountability, it's gotten really, really out of control for a lot of people. And the other thing that we see is when people leave the workplace and, you know, they, they don't have enough to engage with, again, that boredom, the drinking is just going through the roof. So people psychologically unsafe at the moment, right? We're in great fear. We're in great uncertainty. And so many people are turning towards illicit substances, alcohol, gambling, and, you know, behavioural issues to try and... I don't know if they're trying to ignore it or to... Block you know, it out. Block, block it, it out. out. I mean, the thinking right. that last year, I remember like a whiskey in the bath, which used to be a well, Sunday Arvo thing started to become a Monday yeah. Arvo thing and a Tuesday, you know, was all just so much the stress and, and everything. And it, I think that's so important as well, as you said, it's that there's the psychological safety is not there at the moment anywhere we are and that overarching feeling of just yeah uncertainty and fear and ambiguity about the future it just whether you're feeling it severely or even if it's just kind of permeating the general vibe as you said before day to day it does play out like that even when it's a casual drink yeah it's too much in terms of the work that we're doing in workplaces like we're really trying to share with people the effects of substance misuse on productivity yeah okay so what it looks like if you if you're going to do this on the weekend and you're going to come into work on a Monday, right? This is how it's going to affect your work. We're trying to educate people to how to on how to read the signs of substance misuse. Yeah. Right? Because like for people that don't drink and don't take drugs and have never done that, they don't know what it looks like, right? Mm. Until it's really, really bad. Right. So going back to your point of being able to capture people before they go off the precipice, right? 
we share lived experience of drugs and alcohol and gambling in the workplace, right? So all of the coaches, um, myself, Beck Rogers, who's amazing, she's had like 20 years plus in, in corporate. So, you know, we walk in, we understand the dynamic, we understand the language, we look like we belong there, but we've just had this other thing that we've dealt with in our lives, right? The other thing, we uh, like damage to corporate reputation is huge, right? I work with people from corporate, but also from, you know, the sporting world and other echelons of, of work. And this stuff really derails people. And, you know, once it gets out into the public eye, it's hard to fix, right? So we talk about damage to corporate reputation and we give people tools and resources to assist leaders and teams to work through these situations. So if somebody presents and puts their hand up and says, I'm having a really hard time. I need help. Like, what do you do as a HR manager or as a, mm. as a COO or a, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, does, everybody, totally. does everybody know? Like, you might kind of jump on the internet or ask a friend or, like, go and talk to, to somebody else. But, like... There's no there's playbook, a, you know. I think even no, really large organisations yeah. and even if there is, it's more of, you know, what are our policies around that? Very few people yeah. would have the benefit of having someone like you did early in those days to say, you know, this is where I think you need to go and this is what we're going to do about it. So that's enormously powerful. Is that some of what you're helping people do as well, is kind of the playbook yeah. for behaviour? Exactly, and we encourage them to treat it like a person with a, with a medical ailment. Yeah. Right? So if somebody said and, and said, I have, look, I don't want to name specific diseases because I don't want to alienate anyone, but they had a medical condition, right, and they needed time away to deal with that issue, right? So our best case scenario is for that person to get the space that they need free of stigma, free of judgment, free of gossip, right, 100% support, on the proviso that they're prepared to do the work to get better, right? And then they can work with us on in a one-on-one -on -one setting, right, over a period to help them to build the tools and resources and skills they need to be able to navigate life in a, a more productive way, right, and to deal with stress and to deal with, you know, situational things that trigger them and to return to work in a way that helps and supports their recovery, right? So I've seen people take extended leave from full-time positions, right? They might spend eight weeks with me and then they'll return to work in a lighter capacity, right? And then they'll kind of work back up to a full-time capacity. And if they're happy to, right, and if it's if the environment is conducive, then they, they can actually share their story, right? And they can decrease stigma and they can create an environment where they can talk about it. In most cases, people don't really want to, right? They just want to get the help they need, get the toolbox, get back to work and, you know, carry on. But knowing what to do in that situation is, I think it's something new, right? There's so much prevalence. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for anybody out there that's kind of watching and, and maybe going through this at work or going through this with an employee, you know, we're happy to help. We're happy to come and sit in a room and have a conversation about what needs to get done and what the best way to do it is. Mm. That's a perfect way actually to bring us home here, Conrad. I think that's, wow, this, <laughs> this has been a really, really amazing conversation. Thank you so much for sharing so openly, so generously, and also just congratulations on what is a truly important company and something that, you know, we definitely need here in Australia and I've no doubt there's 
there's probably world domination on on the cards for you guys as well. And I really hope there is, I think, for just echoing what Conrad said there, if anyone is listening and this is what you're dealing with, definitely encourage you to reach out. We will be sharing all the links to how you can get in touch with Conrad and the team at Addiction Coaching Australia. But in the meantime, I'm sure they can ping you on LinkedIn or any of those places and would all be really confidential and have a chat. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm really accessible. Right. And I'm, you know, I value people's privacy. I do things with ethics and, you know, with empathy and care. Right. It's like I've been through it. So I'm I'm here to help. If you wanna you wanna talk to me about something, then I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Legend. (laughs) Thanks, Conrad. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. (laughs) 